Good morning. I'm Dan. I'm part of the lead team. And this morning, uh, as Meredith mentioned, we're in a series going through Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. And this morning, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. It'll be on the screen if you'd like to follow along there. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thanks, Dan. Uh, as mentioned, we're in the middle of a, <clears throat> a series called Illuminated, Illuminated, and that's the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews, or the letter written to the Hebrews. And uh, this morning, uh, the message is entitled "Listening, Listening." And uh, I was, I've been on uh, whitewater rafting trips several times, actually. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been on one, uh, depending on. Uh, <laughs> How you interpret the story I'm going to share today might determine whether or not you ever take one. Uh, but uh, we we used to, my wife and I spent 10 years uh, as youth pastors, and we would uh, do a trip annually where we would take students whitewater rafting. There were some years that it was absolutely incredible. There were some years that I was like, why in God's name are we doing this? And uh, Honestly, I wish the, the story that I was going to share was about me specifically, because then I could talk a little bit more clearly about what was going on in my mind. Uh, but the reality is that the story I'm going to share could happen to any one of us. It could have happened uh, to me, but it didn't. Uh, it happened instead to a young lady in our youth ministry. Um, I won't share her name as to not embarrass her, um, but we were uh, we start every trip on the front end of... Uh, of the rapids, and, and it's really an experience for people that are both uh, kind of veterans to whitewater rafting as well as completely new. And so they sit you into this raft, and they take you into this, this little rapid on the front end, and they kind of give you commands, and they give you directions. And so you have to follow the commands and the directions, and the guy in the back of the boat is clarifying, hey, when I say this, you need to do this. When I say this, now let's go practice. And so we go and practice, and everybody cheers, and we all feel good about ourselves, like, yay, we're not going to die today. And uh, <laughs> and so you're doing it, and, it, and it, you think that this is like a legitimate rapid. You don't realize at that point, if you've never been on one, that this is just like a little fun thing to, to play around with to understand the instructions so that when it gets real, you listen. And uh, <clears throat> so we have this uh, this situation, and there's some young ladies that are in the, the boat that are new to the whole concept. We had several boats that year, and uh, so we're all taking direction in different ways. And so we head down uh, the rapids. And before each of the rapid, there's kind of this instruction that's given. Uh, the person in the back of the boat, he's kind of like, all right, he's the guide. And he's like, here's the deal. This is what you can expect here. At this point, we have to do this. At this point, we're going to do that, and blah, blah, blah. We got it. Great. And uh, so we go down and uh, we have a couple of intense experiences. We do some things called surfing where you go into the rapid and your boat just continues to get rammed into the rapids. And you're like, yay, this is fun. We're getting wet. I promise we won't die today. Um, and, uh, and then there's other more intense moments where people are falling out of the boat and you're thinking, wow, maybe we're going to die today. And there's this one point in particular as we're going down uh, the river that he gives some instruction. He says, okay, as we come around uh, this turn here, what we're going to see is we're going to see a pretty intense rapid. And then to the left, there's uh, in the distance, there's a rock that comes out into a point. It's called Knife's Edge. And it's called Knife's Edge because it literally is right on the surface of the water. It's level with the surface of the water, but it comes out to a point almost almost like a knife. And he said, just so you know, if you are out of the boat on the left side, you will think you're fine, but the momentum of you going towards that rock will decap decapitate you. I was like, decapitate. I don't know how I messed that up. Decapitate you. And uh, so you're like, decapitate? What? Like, we were having fun. Like, we're going to cheer with the oar. What do you mean? And he's like, I'm not kidding around. You're going fast enough. It comes to a point. Don't go to the left side. We're like, okay. He's like, so if you fall out, which side are we not going? We're like, that left. And he's like, got it. He's like, so when we come, when we come around this turn, if anybody falls out, you're going to swim as hard as you can to the right side. 
this side. Everybody's like, all right. He's like, point to this side. We all point to that side. And so he's giving all these instructions and giving very clear instructions prior as to what happens if you fall out and all that stuff, the way you're supposed to put your back to the water as far as the way you're going so you can face uh, back towards the boat. He's going to throw a rope to you. There's all these very clear instructions, right? And um, as you can imagine, all of this stuff matters <laughs> because we come around and we start hitting these rapids and sure enough, like bodies are just flying everywhere. It's like carnage, you know, you think you were actually, they're just grabbing people's life preservers and pulling them back in. And he's like, hard right, hard left. We're like, we're going to die. You know, people are like, why did we pay for this? <laughs> you know, like, and, uh, <clears throat> and all of a sudden uh, a young lady falls out of the left side of the boat. And, um, in an unbelievable moment of I don't know what, she starts swimming to the left instead of the right. And we're like screaming to her, swim right! We're like yelling and yelling, go right. And there's oars floating everywhere and other people, you know, swimming the, to the right as that have fallen out. And we're screaming to her and we were watching her swim as hard as she can to the left. And we find out afterwards that it's because she believed that she could save herself, that she could just get to the shore, that she was close enough that she could swim to the shore. In fact, she was so certain and swimming so hard that she neglected to be paying attention to where our guide was throwing a rope. There's a lifeline. And so he has this rope in a baggie that up until this point he hasn't used because it hadn't gotten that serious. But uh, you're wondering, like, is it really that bad? What's happening? I mean, can she really be decapitated? I mean, and then you see him, like, in panic, stand up and grab this thing and just, and you see this rope shoot out. And you're like, oh, no, this is real. Like, that's pretty legit. All the stops are coming out. And so this lifeline shoots out and lands across her shoulder, and she just swims right through it. Swims right through it. And we're screaming to grab the line. And she's so panicked that she's not paying attention. And all of a sudden, she just stops. She just stops and starts floating. Like, what in the world is happening? And so we're trying to point to go this way, to go this way. She's like waving. And we're like, no, this way you're going to die. And she's like, I'm going to die. I don't know. You know. And so she's waving and we're like screaming and yelling and she just looks as content as ever, just bobbing along towards her certain death. And so as she goes along, there's a, there's a word in the English language called complacency. And complacency actually defined means a smug satisfaction with what you have achieved. Isn't that interesting? So complacency isn't really laziness. It's the idea that you've done what you intended to do. And so the best way to describe what's happening in this moment is that she is complacent. It's like, I did it, guys. I'm good. And so she starts to float along. And as she's floating along, she's getting closer and closer to what we know to be knife's edge. And we see the peak of it kind of coming up out of the water as the water goes down and it comes to a straight point and she is going, I don't know how many miles an hour right towards it. And so the question I want to ask you as we move through this morning's message is why does complacency seem so harmless? Why does complacency seem so harmless in those moments that we think we've done enough, that we're so proud of ourselves, that we're saving ourselves, that we're doing the work necessary? Why does it feel so harmless to become complacent? I think it seems harmless because we like to think that if we're keeping to ourselves, if we've done what we think or what we feel is our best, which is what society puts on us, right? Like, just do your best. Try your hardest. If you've done your best, if you've tried your hardest, then really you're the only one that's going to pay the consequences of this. And so there's a level of complacency. I think we're not hurting anyone else is what we tell ourselves in moments that we feel good about what it is that we've tried. Like I've said before, we as humans, uh, peculiar people, we, uh, we think we can live static lives. 
that our lives don't ultimately have impact on others, that we can just kind of keep to ourselves and the decisions that we make and the things that we think and the things that we feel, they don't have really a ripple effect, but that we can just kind of be this static environment of like, well, I'm only affecting myself. That's not really the case, obviously, but we also don't feel like kind of this complacency or this static existence in every area of life. Not in every situation. In fact, I'm confident that we all have the capacity to be very outspoken and extremely passionate given the circumstances. And I know that there's all different types of people in this room and and you might be a super reserved, very quiet, very meek person. But I've seen the most quiet, meek person throw chips up in the air when their favorite team scores a touchdown, right? Or or all of a sudden, the most quiet and meek mother all of a sudden just lashes out in defense of their child, right? Given the right circumstance, the right situation, we can all be very outspoken and extremely passionate. You see, it's not our personality that defines our capacity to respond. It's the topic that drives our capacity to engage others. The topic. It's the situation, the circumstances. So you can be a very meek person, a very outspoken person, but given the right topic, you can become enraged, you can become outspoken, you can become passionate. The meekest of people just going nuts as someone cuts them off. I could talk about certain sports teams. You'd lose your mind, right? I could make definitive uh, statements about your loved ones or things that you care about, and all of a sudden something rises up in you. If you care enough, you'll speak up. If you care enough, you'll speak up. In fact, you'll be relentless instead of complacent. If the circumstance is close enough to a matter of your heart, you'll become relentless. If you or or someone you love is really threatened, really threatened, and you understand the threat. Not like you think you're safe. No, you understand the threat. You won't simply speak up. You'll take action, right? You respond. You leap into action, even beyond your ability, beyond your strength, beyond your capacity, maybe even beyond your rights in the given circumstance because you're that passionate about what's taking place. It's why people say things like, Our silence is screaming. At times, our lack of action is approval of what's being done, right? When when something is, is happening and you remain silent, it's a level of approval. When something is taking place and all of a sudden you don't take action, sometimes that's almost more meaningful than the others that are taking action. It's like, wait a second, so... You must be all right with what's happening. You are quiet, so you must agree with what they're saying. Our silence screams. Our lack of action is approval. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is addressing in humanity. In verse 1, it starts off, verse 1 of chapter 2, says, Therefore, and therefore, uh, I'll read the, the whole verse and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Therefore, it means for this reason, for this reason. So in order to really understand uh, the beginning of chapter two, the first one of the first verse of chapter two, you have to understand um, the chapter prior. So it's really chapter one is standing on the shoulders of the statements made in chapter one. Therefore, for this reason, it means that what is about to be said is attached to what has just been established. So if you weren't here in previous weeks, what's happening is because of the supremacy of Jesus, which is what's revealed in the previous chapter, the supremacy of Jesus and him being revealed in the Old Testament as the true Messiah, for that reason, because of this, because of that being established in chapter one, therefore, we must pay much closer attention, much closer attention. Uh, It doesn't translate super well. I mean, you wouldn't say that to your kids. You need to pay much closer attention, right? It seems kind of like weird, uh, almost uncomfortable. But the attention aspect 
of those words there, attention in the original Greek actually means obsession. It means obsession. So this, this idea of directing your attention means to have an obsession over something. And much closer can be translated furiously or obsessively. So what the author is saying is because of who Christ is, because of what he's established, because he's been identified as the true Messiah, because of that, we must be furiously obsessed with what we have heard. So because God has spoken via the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we must be furiously obsessed over what? Over the gospel, over what we've heard, over the reality of what Christ has done on our behalf. Furiously obsessed over the gospel. I love this. I love the language of it. I love it because it's amazingly disruptive and incredibly convicting. Like, we can become furiously obsessed over our favorite, our favorite sports team. <laughs> we can become furiously obsessed over our favorite, favorite restaurant. Why can't I say favorite? What is going on? I'm like, favorite. My favorite. We can be furiously obsessed over my incapacity to communicate. Anyway, we, we can have a furious obsession over so many things that ultimately matter so little. <laughs> they matter so little, and yet we are obsessed over them. Are you furiously obsessed with the gospel? Listen, if you realize that God has spoken and you actually care about that, then it requires you, it requires me to be furiously obsessed to have the gospel message infiltrate every facet of our lives, right? We're talking about God, the creator of the world. And listen, I know that there's all different types of people in the room at all different levels of, of belief all the way to skeptic and people that aren't quite sure there is a God and that's okay. I'm glad you're here. But for the sake of argument today, for those that believe that there is a God, how can you believe that there is a God that he has spoken through the truth of his word, the Bible, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the, the communication of other Christ followers that align with scripture, all these ways and avenues in which God himself, the creator of the universe, is speaking, and we're like, eh. Okay. Like, no, God says that because of who Jesus is and what he has done, you don't have to strive anymore. Yeah, yeah, I get it. No, no, no. Like, we should be filled with joy. We should be patient. There should be an outflow, an overflow of the love that we have for others. Like, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. Are you obsessed? Are you furiously obsessed with the truth of the gospel and the ripple effect into your life? want to tell you, we aren't, we aren't often. We aren't. We often aren't. And it's the reason why most of the people that we rub shoulders with and the world that we live in are kind of like unimpressed with this whole thing called Christianity. In fact, they marginalize it to a thing called religion, which honestly, I think is a ripoff. I'm not a religious person in the way that I interact with God. Like I religiously brush my teeth. I religiously take a shower. There are a lot of things that I religiously do. Having a relationship with the living God is not one of them. But a relationship actually affects you. It changes you. It gets messy. It gets awkward. It gets difficult. It requires communication. It requires some effort. You see, a relationship is a lot different than simple attendance to a church. When we simply attend a church and we, we compartmentalize the gospel, we don't furiously obsess over it, it becomes a compartmentalization of one aspect of our life, the, the moral part of who we are. <laughs> and it's just this one little sliver of a big pie. Then we're missing the point altogether. And at that point, we may ultimately just dismiss it. In fact, I would argue you probably should. Because you've minimized God, the creator of the universe, to one little aspect of your life. 
Instead, the gospel should be the center of our lives, informing every little sliver. Because of the truth of the gospel, how am I as a husband? Because of the truth of the gospel, how am I as a parent? Because of the truth of the gospel, how am I in my workplace? How am I in when someone cuts me off? How, how am I when someone you know, argues against my favorite team? Are we furiously obsessed with the thing that actually matters? Are we furiously obsessed with some secondary thing? And we've marginalized the truth of the gospel to one little sliver of our otherwise very busy life. It's incredibly disruptive and very convicting. Maybe you're not convinced, and that's okay. In fact, I would say it's easier and healthier for you to say, I'm not convinced that God is real than to say, I believe God is real and I've made him so small that he fits into one little sliver of my life. I turn him on and I turn him off. He's cute. He's a cute little God. All throughout scripture, we see and read where angels have spoken to humans. When, we, when you read the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, uh, Christmas is right around the corner. It seems like it's already here, right? I went <laughs> to the mall, I heard Christmas music. I was like, what in the world is happening? <laughs> Let's just have Thanksgiving for the love. But we're right there. The, the, the Christmas story, angels appear to shepherds and they speak. And so all throughout scripture, we see within the Old Testament and the New Testament, angels speaking. And did you know that 100% of the time when angels speak to humans, they are terrified. They're terrified. The, the, the language is so strong in scripture, whether you're in Hebrew or whether you're in Greek, the, the language is so strong and intense that every time it indicates that they are almost on the verge of death, that they are horrified and that this angelic being is communicating to them. They're struck, they're frightened. And yet, the God of heaven, the creator of the angels, speaks to us, and we think, okay, right? He speaks to us via his word, the Bible. He speaks to us via other people, as I've already mentioned, promptings within us, and we marginalize and we push them down, and we think, oh, but I'm super busy right now. But we feel this impulse to do something contrary to our flesh, contrary to what it is that we would otherwise do as selfish human beings, and instead we just kind of push it back. Isn't that incredibly out of balance? Incredibly out of balance that in moments that angels reveal themselves, humanity is terrified, and yet the creator of the angels, God himself, would speak via different aspects of our life, and we just marginalize it. It's not okay. It's not okay. It should bother you. You should think like, oh my gosh, like what is it that, that God, the creator of the universe, the one that created me, that knit me together in my mother's womb, is he speaking to me? What am I doing with that? I want to submit something to you. God is speaking. He's always speaking. The question is, are you listening? That's the deal. We sit back all the time and say, well, if God would just show up and, and tell me. You know, there's, there's this uh, joke, I guess you'd say, or caption story. I'm not really sure what it's called, where there's a, a man captured on a roof in the midst of a flood. And as he's in this flood, a, a person comes by with a, a boat and says, come get aboard, get aboard. And he goes, no, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to be all right. God's going to save me. I'm going to be all right. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been praying. I'm good, I'm good. And so the boat goes by and he continues to pray and the floodwaters continue to come up and a helicopter comes over and tries to drop a rope. And he's like, no, I'm praying. God's going to do something amazing. We'll see, you know. And, and, also, and the, the way the story goes, it's kind of morbid and creepy, is that he dies and he's in heaven and he says, man, I, I really believed, God, that you were going to intervene, that you were going to do something miraculous. He's like, I sent you a boat and a helicopter what is your problem? And I think, you know, as tragic of that reality is, is that I think we get to a place in our lives where we become like, God, will you just show me what to do? If you just show me what to do, I would do it. 
And like a friend is telling us, hey, listen, I think you need to break up with that guy. You're like, yeah, shut up. Um, So I'm just praying, Lord, will you just show me? Because I just want to be in your will. I just want to marry who you want me to marry, you know? And then all of a sudden your mom calls out of the blue, like, listen, I hate this guy. I'm not kidding. Like, I was praying for him and and he's such a dirtbag and I think it's time for you to part ways. You're like, okay, mom, mind your own business. I'm an adult. Oh, yeah. Like, God, what do you want? What is your will? You know, like, seriously? Like, we have all of these interventions into our lives. And, And what it is is that they're not saying what we want to hear. That's what it is. Because we've grown complacent. We're smug about what it is we've achieved. So we're like, I'm good. I got this thing called life. I'm figuring it out. I think I know what to do here. Often, our response to God is complacency. Why? I think it's because we don't understand the stakes. I think it's because we've fallen so in love with the world around us that we think the reason we live is to move ahead in this world. Which honestly is exactly what people apart from God would conclude, right? Get as many toys as you can, get as, head as, you, get as far ahead as you can, and listen, you made it. You worked hard. You raised some good kids. We want to preserve our current reality. We want to preserve our own will. And honestly, it seems harmless, right? And who are we hurting? I was raised to be a hard worker. I want to raise good kids. Those aren't bad things. As long as they're not disrupted by the gospel. Come on, God, just... Go back into your little sliver. I don't want that to mess up my plan here. I don't want it to to disrupt my reality. It's the difference between hearing and listening. I think uh, there's been endless examples of me throughout my life where my parents have said something, my sisters have said something, and I simply didn't hear them. Like you hear a noise or something and you have a sense that someone's talking, but you're not sure if they're talking to you. And then they come back, you're like, Claude! What in the world? And you're like, what? I didn't hear you. I mean, I heard something, but I didn't know you were talking to me. And so I think the first thing that we really have to to think about is, are we listening, right? Can we, are we actually positioning ourselves to hear what it is that God is saying? But then there's also examples in my life where I heard someone, but I didn't listen to them. The difference between hearing and listening talked about it before and I think it's something that we need to revisit often because it's the way we function in our society is that we hear things but what it is that we've heard doesn't always result in action which is the indicator of listening right so you can hear someone but you don't listen until you take action on what you've heard like that's why when you look at you you're like were you listening like I heard you like yeah no but you weren't listening (laughs) I realize you can hear the words coming out of my mouth but you're not listening because you're still doing it I said stop did you hear me oh yeah I I hear you (laughs) okay are you gonna listen yeah got it hearing and listening so the question is really twofold are you positioning yourself to hear God which is really about a level of maybe humility that when someone says something that's aligned with scripture that you're willing to say, ah, I need to hear that. I don't like it, but it's the truth. Do you have truth tellers in your life? Not like, oh yeah, they're my best friend, like forever. And so they really just want my will as much as I want my will. And so they're my best friend because they tell me everything I want to hear all the time. (laughs) I don't mean that. I mean somebody that understands the gospel and tells you the truth when you don't want to hear it. In love says, you know, you're living outside of the gospel on that. I think this relationship is damaging. I think you need to reconsider moving there. I think you have to reconsider X, Y, Z. 
Do you have truth tellers in your life? Are you positioning yourself to hear God? And then the, the second part of that twofold question is if you've heard, are you listening? Are you listening? End of the verse, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. Therefore, we must be furiously obsessed to what we have heard, which is the gospel, lest we drift away from it. We drift away from the implications of the truth of the gospel because of our own depravity, because of our own propensity to be sinful. You know, drift is a nautical term. Nautical means it has to do with boats and water. Just making sure we're all on the same page. We know rowing or swimming in the wrong direction. You can get in a lot of danger. You can get lost. It's kind of common sense. But drifting will equally get you off course. Staying still and allowing the current to push you where you ought not go is just as dangerous as swimming or rowing in the wrong direction. I think drifting is more dangerous because it's more subtle and it's easily masked, right? The drift is like, oh, you know what? Though I, I'm not swimming in the wrong direction. I just decided to tread water for a second. I'm just living static. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just kind of taking a break. I'm pausing. It's subtle. And so it becomes more dangerous because it gets masked into things like, I'm resting. I'm just resting. Are you? Because it looks like you're drifting. Not doing anything wrong. You know, spiritual drift is just as subtle. If we don't stay listening to God, hearing and acting. Right? So listen, if, if we don't stay listening to God. Not if we don't stay attending church. Now, attending church is hearing, I assume, unless you're like, la-di-da, 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 da-da, la-di-da, da Which, by the way, if you're ignoring me that well, kudos. That is impressive. That is impressive stuff. But it, it, not just hearing, but then saying, okay, I've heard that. What am I going to do about it? What is the application? What are the ripple effects in my life? Because if we're just coming and hearing and we're not doing anything with it, then are we really listening to God? We're just playing church. If you are not listening, then you will drift away from the gospel. You'll drift away from the implications of truth in your life. You'll begin to speak lies. You'll believe lies that others speak to you. You need the truth to transform your mind. Romans talks about the renewing of our minds for the transformation because, because we need to be reminded. It's why we take communion. It's why we do things in remembrance. It's because our heart drifts. It drifts. I'm going to whip out some SAT words just for fun. Our orthodoxy must be congruent with our orthopraxy. And what that means, orthodox, is, is what you believe, what you hold to be true. The tenets of faith, the doctrine, does your orthodoxy, the thing you believe, connect with our orthopraxy? And, and it's what it sounds like, our practice, what it is that we do, what our actions are. Is what you believe actually being played out or congruent with your actions? Or are they completely in opposition? If they're in complete opposition, then you've erred on one side or the other. You're, you're either not hearing or you're hearing and you're not listening, right? What you believe should be obvious in your actions, not because you conjure them up, but because they're an outflow of what's transformed in your heart. Because when you furiously obsess over something, you can't help but have it infiltrate every sentence you say. Every decision you make, right? You've been around people that furiously obsess over one politician or another. And you're like, for the love of God. <laughs> like it becomes the topic of everything. You're like, how did we make this political? I don't even, like I just want broccoli. <laughs> uh-huh, it's green. I don't know what that means. 
I'm stepping away from the broccoli. <laughs> like, like it's just everything turns out. Why? Because they're furiously obsessed with something. Are you furiously obsessed with the gospel? Not spiritual extreme, but obsessed with the gospel to the point that it transforms the grace that you extend to others. How slow you are to anger. How quick you are to listen. How encouraging you are to other people. How you speak life into others rather than death. Are you a truth teller? Or do you placate to the will of others so that they'd like you more? Think about that. Think about what it looks like to furiously obsess and push the gospel into every aspect of your life. Verses 2 through the beginning of verse 3 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Face value might be like, what? <laughs> Where is that going? What is that talking about? The first part says, for, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, the message declared by angels is a reference to the Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament, the law. It was brought by angels and confirmed. So what it's referring to is the fact that the law must be fulfilled. The law was brought to us and it must be fulfilled, but it goes on. It says it's proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, received past tense, past tense ongoing. It received it already. The debt has been paid. The reference is to the reality of the truth of the gospel, that although the Mosaic covenant came and the law exists, Jesus came and fulfilled the law once and for all and for all eternity. The retribution has been paid. The debt has been paid. But then the author goes on and says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, if you allow spiritual drift to take place, you are neglecting the redemptive reality of what Christ has done on the cross. And so therefore, you will bear the retribution and responsibility. That's what the author is saying here is, listen, don't drift because the implications is greater than you realize. Not only will it affect your eternity potentially, but it will affect the ripple effect that you have on the redemptive story of others. If you're complacent, maybe you don't understand the stakes. Maybe you don't understand the implication of drift. And so you're smug in your achievements. I'm a good person. I do a lot, a lot of good things. So impressive. And so it's complacency because maybe you don't understand the stakes or maybe you're listening to a lie. Maybe you're listening to a lie that you can save yourself. The shore's right there. If I swim hard enough, I can make it to the shore. I'm good. I can do this. I got this thing called life. My mom doesn't understand. My friend doesn't get it. Like, listen, the church is good and religion is great. I hate that phrase. But you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I got this. I get it. They just don't understand the full story. I'm going to save myself. I'm so impressed with myself. And so the end of verse 3 on to verse 4, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed, distributed according to his will. Miracles are not an end to themselves. Oftentimes, we get in settings similar to this one, and maybe if you're a skeptic out there, you might say, well, listen, I mean, if I saw a miracle, whew, that would change everything. Then I'd be furiously obsessed with God. I mean, a miracle? That's incredible. Like if I saw somebody just get up out of a chair and walk across the room, whoa, that would be amazing, especially if I knew that person, because otherwise I'd think it was a setup. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> just being honest. <laughs> and so we think like, man, if I saw an angel, whew, then that would, man, that would be a game changer. If I heard an angel tell me something, 
Let's forget about the fact that God's speaking to me daily through the word of God, other people, scripture, preaching, all of that. Ah, it's God talking about it, but an angel, whoa, that would be amazing. And we're enamored by this idea of a miracle, and yet a miracle exists for the purpose of revealing that there's someone that does the miraculous. See, miracles point to God. And I think, I think we get too impressed with physical miracles. Like, if I knew somebody that was lame in some way from birth, and all of a sudden they were miraculously healed, I would be impressed. I would be, for sure. But the fact is, that person's still going to die sometime. And even if God rose them from the dead, they're going to die again. Like, here's the deal. Lazarus rose from the dead, but then he died. (laughs) Right? Like, we don't tell that story. (laughs) We don't tell the end of the story. Like, Lazarus isn't walking around somewhere. Okay? He died. I wonder how many fools stood outside and be like, Lazarus! Come forth. That's what he did, right? right? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, come forth. Come forth. Right now? Because he stinketh still, like the same way as last time. Is he still dead? Yeah, let's roll it away. Yeah, he's still dead. Why did Lazarus rise from the dead? To reveal that Jesus was the son of God. Miracles take place to point to God. But here's the deal. We get so enamored by the physical miracle that we forget. Like in today's society with technology, Doctors can do some miracles. Like, they can do some things you're like, what? How in the world? You're kidding. Like, it blows my mind. You know what, though? <clears throat> if you've got a, a room full of really competent Christian counselors and doctors, and you brought up a raging alcoholic, you said, how long would it take for this person to lead a normal life. There would be all different types of timelines and ideas of what would need to take place in order for that person to change. And yet I know people, raging alcoholics, and in a moment, God transformed their lives because of the truth of the gospel. It awakened something within them that released their furious obsession with a lesser created thing and turned their heart towards something that was far greater, and it was a game changer. It was a miracle. That's a miracle. But you know, I think it's also a miracle when someone that was raised in an abusive household has an encounter with a loving God and somehow realizes what it looks like to be a loving father, although it was never modeled to them. It's a miracle. We marginalize it. It's a miracle when someone's heart is enamored by themselves, greediness, and the things of this world. And in a moment, the truth of the gospel awakens something within them. And they go from headed to hell to headed to eternity with God in heaven. Salvation is a miracle. It's a miracle that no one can match on this world. The doctors, psychologists, they cannot match it. And yet we think, if only I saw a miracle. What are you talking about? There's miracles all around the room. There's stories right next to you of God's miracle work in and through every person in this room where God has done something that simply cannot be denied. God is speaking to us through the stories and the narratives of every person we come in contact with. And all the while, with helicopters flying by and boats going by, we're like, God, if only you'd show me you're real. What? There's a miracle sitting right next to you. We've we've made God so small. So small. Miracles are not an, an end to themselves. They point to someone. And spiritual gifts are not an end to themselves. When the scripture, when this when the author of Hebrews is talking about miracles and, and um, spiritual gifts, talking about realizing the, the origin where they come from. Spiritual gifts are not for personal enjoyment. Spiritual gifts exist to edify the church and to testify that Jesus is Lord. That's why. 
That's why we possess these gifts to connect to a body and to declare Jesus is Lord so that we can do things to, to be a part of the redemptive narrative of every person we come in contact with, every sphere that we have impact in the marketplace and wherever the Lord would send us for his glory. You see, the gospel illuminates every aspect of your life. Are you listening? Are you listening? Or in some way, have you just been lulled to sleep? Complacent? Kind of impressed with yourself? So there she is, drifting. Some of you wondered if I was going to come back around. She's drifting, and her little helmet bobbing up and down in the water. I'm standing in the raft. I don't remember if Meredith was or not, but she was passionately yelling as well. I am standing because I'm literally thinking, I'm going to tell this girl, I'm going to tell this girl's parents that I watched her die. Flying down the rapids, Bob, 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 and this rock point is sticking out. And in a moment of absolute brilliance, a kayaker coming along faster than I thought was physically possible with all of his strength. I'm not kidding. Two thirds of this kayak was up out of the water. I swear he's just going along and he shoots down alongside and slams himself, literally beaches himself on the, on the razor point of this rock. And she slaps her head right off the side of his kayak and he grabs a hold of her and he's trying to stay afloat, literally risking his own life as his kayak starts to fill with water. Another kayaker goes to the other shore, runs aside and starts to pull them up. And this girl is sitting there smiling and completely unaware of what it is that has just taken place. I want to tell you that as we bob along in the brokenness of our own life, swimming in the wrong direction as hard as we can, trying to save ourselves, so impressed that at moments we even just sit complacent. I got this. And the God of heaven is screaming and yelling, reminding us of the warnings we have heard, all the people intervening, lifelines being shot out. We're like, hi. But it's Jesus himself, God in flesh, that entered into time, that entered into humanity, and in the most brilliant of ways, laid his life down to pay the penalty that you and I so richly deserve. And in our obliviousness, we sometimes sit there with grins on our face, not aware of the threat that we're facing, the consequences of eternity in balance. And we're like, I think I'm good, guys. Wow, this kayaker's amazing, right? We miss it. I want to tell you, the truth of the gospel needs to disrupt you. It needs to unsettle the way you deal with everything. I'm not interested in being just a part of a church where we get together and obligatorily sit down every Sunday and be like, let's sing along, come on. See you next week. No, I want to be a part of a community of people that realize how broken they are and link arms and say, you know what? Let's live life for something greater than ourselves. Let's be a part of a movement that God is doing so that every person in this community and surrounding communities can have an opportunity to know and hear the truth. Let it disrupt you. Let it unsettle you. Jesus has done the work so that we can walk in truth. We often say around here that the text requires something from us. And so this morning, as we consider the implications for ourselves, I want to ask you a question, an application question as you leave this place to, to communicate with one another, someone that you came, or even your children. The question is this, what truth do I need to stop neglecting? What truth do I need to stop neglecting? And so maybe the application for you this morning is that you need to stop neglecting the truth of the gospel. Maybe it's that you've insulated your life so much that you're living for you to be the Lord and leader of your life. And maybe this morning your application is to say, okay, I'm going to lay down my will. 
I'm going to surrender to God and I'm going to cross that line of salvation. But for others of you, maybe the application looks slightly different. In fact, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And you can leave your eyes open if you want. It's just so you're not distracted as the team comes up to begin playing. As they make their way up, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider the truth that you might be neglecting. Is there a lie that you need to replace with truth? Somewhere along the line, have you been believing a lie that maybe someone else spoke into your life? Or maybe it's just a lie that, that you purpose to believe, that you speak to yourself. Hey, I got this. I got it. I'm going to fake it till I make it. What lie do you need to replace with truth? Maybe someone told you a lie that you're unlovable. That you don't have a plan or a purpose for your life. It's a lie. The truth of the gospel says you're valuable. That there's a plan and a purpose that you were created for a reason. God desperately loves you. In a moment of brilliance, he stepped into humanity so that you could experience the fullness of redemption and not reap the consequences of your sinful life. Jesus did it. Maybe for you, the, the truth that you need to stop neglecting is that you're gifted. That maybe you need to risk being a part of a community. Maybe you attend, but you haven't really leaned in and say, you know, I want to leverage my gift for God's glory. I want to be a part of what God's doing. I want to I risk maybe some time, leverage my talent to be a part of, a, of, of something greater than myself. Maybe for others of you, you're sitting there saying, listen, I'm, I'm a committed Christ follower. I'm le leveraging my gifts. I'm, I'm speaking the truth of the gospel to myself. I'm there. And to you, I would say, what's next? We never outpace the implications and the application of scripture. We can never sit back and say, I get it. I already know this. What is it that God is calling you to do? What God risk have you been called to do? You've just been shying away from. Man, I want to release you to do that. The God of heaven wants to release you to do that this morning, to live on mission like never before, to dream about the possibilities, to dream gospel-centered dreams, to dream what if, God, what if, whatever that is, allow the Holy Spirit to whisper dreams into your life. We're going to go into a time of response this morning in song. But as we do, I want to challenge you to continue to contemplate the implications of the truth being spoken and how well you're listening.